0: Hey, just a quick note before we get into part three with Dick Metz. The Hobgood doc and two, if by Sea just became available for streaming. This is something that I began tracking with Scott Bass almost six years ago, I think. Um, So we've talked about it over the years. And then I interviewed the filmmaker Justin Purser back in July. That's episode number 278 of Surf Splendor. And that actually has a bonus uh, Q&A at the end of it with Damien and C.J. Hobgood that we recorded live at the Florida Surf Film Festival. At any rate, this is my reminder to tell you that it is now available on Prime, Google Play, Apple TV. And since it's released just, I think, yesterday or maybe the day before, it's actually sitting in third place in documentary films on iTunes, which is pretty rad to see. So anyways, I'll discuss it with Scott and Chaz later this week, and I've posted a link to where you can stream it on this episode's page. Of course, you could just go into any streaming service um, and type in and to if by C, but I will post a link to it on surfsplendorpodcast.com, and then I'll hyperlink to it in the show notes on your phone, but don't watch it on your phone. It's definitely worthwhile on your sofa, maybe while you're wrapping Christmas gifts, and especially the G-Land stuff at the end, really new footage, beautiful footage, great surfing, all of that. And a great primer, by the way, that G-Land stuff is a great primer for next year's CT event. We don't get to see enough G-Land nowadays. So anyways, that's your reminder, and I hope that you enjoy today's show. Did you uh, keep a diary through this whole time? Because it's shocking how much detail you remember.
1: Uh, well, Have I, I, I did partially. Partially. Uh, and I don't know where that is. Uh, yeah, I've moved a bunch of times. But yeah, I had a notebook and I wrote down what I thought at the time were important, but it comes out to be the things I thought were important aren't so important. Yeah, you're com- writing
0: about girls, basically. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, and surf. Uh, and now it's more like Whitmore. And I, the specific things... That didn't seem to have any great bearing at the time. Yeah. Now,
0: obviously, do. Well, did you um, go back and ever read the journals before you
1: lost them to well, re- I didn't, reaffirm I, the I memories? I know they're. I they haven't gone. Oh, okay. They're just somewhere. We've moved stuff around, and it should be here, but it might be at my house. Okay.
0: But the fact that you recall so much detail isn't because you
1: wrote about it and read it you're just remembering no the reason i remember it so well i think is it obviously had a big impact on my life but because the pictures i took a lot of pictures and i've shown those to schools and as i said yesterday to service clubs and stuff so you know that just kept it fresh in my mind i think that makes sense and i've been you know you're not the first one that's done this either so all every time you repeat it it's just kind of uh it brings back other little and each time i remember little instances Hmm. you know that i might tell you about that i didn't tell somebody else that i just didn't enter right because there's so many daily things i mean yesterday i forgot what it was that i said i could give you way more detail uh But, you know, just traveling through Africa every day was exciting or scary or unique or something. And when I'm talking, and especially when we're kind of on a time frame, whether it's yours or mine or whatever, I I skip over little details that really are a a little individual story in itself. Yeah. Uh, We are live,
0: just for the record. But, um, yeah, I we should tell listeners that it's like the only const we've just been working with a time constraint since we've been recording this. If we had unlimited time, I feel like this could be a hundred hour long. Yeah, it could be
1: because I mean, when I'm in Tahiti every day and getting on that ship, uh, you know, just the things that happen that were so different and unique from my perspective Mm -hmm. that uh, I think of them, uh, you know at different times different things bring them to my consciousness mm-hmm. so I, I there's a lot of stuff that if if there's time was unlimited and I really thought about it there's a lot of little details that I could certainly fill in in between have you ever thought about writing them down like into a book well yes uh, and Ben Marcus you know Ben well he's been after me for years and so I've done a lot of uh, stuff recording with him just recording stuff not he didn't have a podcast or anything but we um, well basically I have to back up I've had two long interviews the different guys one of them lives in Hawaii Um, god I've known him for years he lives in Kauai and he interviewed me for hours and hours over the telephone and he recorded that and I have CDs that he converted from the recording to cds i think there's 37 of them or something and so then ben took those cds and wrote it out and i have a book this thick of just his recording of that stuff wow But there again, it it was just individuals. There's things I didn't say in some of those. So every time I do one, that's why I said to you yesterday, it's important to keep these because each one is apt to have a little different uh, indication or story or uh, go off in a little different direction. Right. Well, (laughs)
0: That is of course our main man of the end of the year of the month of december uh dick metz i've actually been really fortunate i think these last couple of years to end with really impactful interviews Brissick two years ago uh Derek hind and actually Derek hind and then opening the year with maurice cole this past year and the timing is just kind of happenstance um and this year is really no different I recorded these episodes with Dick Metz a few months ago, but um, there was enough, I had enough other stuff in the can to where it just happened that these Dick Metz episodes would be in December. And the feedback that I've been getting about Dick Metz has been absolutely overwhelming. So I apologize if I haven't responded to your specific email yet. I will. Um, I've been super busy with holiday deadlines, work, family, and all that stuff, but I'll have time to catch up just before the end of the year so i will get back to you and i'm also planning to compile your emails and direct messages into a document that i will give to dick i think that he'll appreciate that you enjoy him and that you value his stories so um know that and it'd be great if i can get away for him to get back to you guys so we'll see how that goes but um, I'm really happy to report that I'm going to be recording a fourth installment with Dick later this week, which I'll publish the week of New Year's. I'm going to be taking Christmas week off. Next week, I'll take off, then publish it the following week. And today's story, it or today's episode, it ends um, with Dick's, you know, at the end of Dick's three-year trip around the world when Dick was 32, but obviously a lot has transpired in the subsequent 60 years. And some of the greatest value of that trip really only became apparent in hindsight. So Dick will illuminate that. Obviously, the Endless Summer was inspired by his trip. So kind of hear how that all played out for Dick. And then a lot of people have also been asking about his diet, his exercise, how he has stayed so sharp at the age of 90. So I'm going to ask him about that. I'll ask if he's done much drugs or alcohol. So whether or not that affected his mental acuity or whether he still does those things, I, I don't know, but I'll get to the bottom of that stuff. We've scheduled two hours to record, and I'm sure we'll use every single second if not going over that. So um, you can look forward to that. Today's episode includes more nudity, more being chased by 1,000-pound animals in the wild, uh, the Olympics, and of course, way more than I could even possibly begin to tell you about and then I'm also going to give you one last holiday reminder to support our sponsor, Slow Tide, slowtide.co. Our promo code is the word podcast. That'll give you 10% off. They are known for making towels, but they do kind of more than that at this point. Um, the premium woven towel is my main beach towel that I use, but grab bath towels or a blanket for your mom, perhaps for gift giving. A changing poncho for anyone in your life who surfs would be a great gift. It's actually higher quality and plusher than any premium bathrobe that I've ever owned or even just seen a touch and felt. And it's half the price of a premium bathrobe. I mean, less than half the price of a premium bathrobe. So the changing ponchos are it. Thick, plush, heavy, super warm, hooded. And then consider one of their uh, Shaper Series travel towels as an add-on for yourself if you are buying gifts for people. They have collaborations with Eric Eric Howa, Mayhem, Pizel, Bing, 12 shapers in total, a bunch of whom we've interviewed on this podcast. So slowtide.co, I'm thrilled to have them as partners. Our promo code is the word podcast. You will save 10% and you will be psyched on the towels. And without further ado, of course, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. And here is part three with the most interesting man in the surf world, Dick Metz. Enjoy.
1: Well, let's go back to Durban. Okay, well, I think we talked about, uh, they gave me the key to the city, gave me a free hotel room. I stayed there, I don't know, probably a week or 10 days and surfed with uh, Baron Stadler and Jack Wilson and uh, Harry Bold uh, and both those guys have been here and stayed with me over the years harry immigrated to new zealand and has come up here he was here about two years ago and spent a a week here when we had a gala and he was at that so i've really maintained these contacts you know with the whitmore family and people in cape town and so that um, a guy named miles masterson has been writing a book about john whitmore and he has Uh, what do you Skype me and interviewed me for that so there's been in both directions there has been recordings and you know there really hasn't been a book and I don't know books are seemingly not as important as they once were but um, I I don't want to write a book and go around to bookstores and try and sell it but I do want all this stuff either recorded digitally here at the foundation or written printed so somebody could do some research because i envision 100 years from now some guy wanting to know about the depression or something and i talked about life in laguna during the depression and before the war and how the troops came into laguna and we i was a messenger i don't know if i told you that story but I have the military helmet. It's a white helmet with a lightning bolt on it. And because I was, they took the track team, the relay team, and they didn't have radios then. And they had gun emplacements up on the Third Gum Grove in the top of the world. And they didn't. And the police station downtown Laguna was the headquarters. So they had us running messages from the top of the world to the police station. Wow. And, you know, it's that kind of stuff that I still have the helmet right. that they gave me. Uh, and so that, to me, makes it more viable oh, yeah. when you have some supporting evidence. Totally. It's like these sandals, yeah. you know. Um, <clears throat> so there's all these little stories that each time I don't maybe remember that one, I get sidetracked yeah. and, of course, start talking about something else. So anyway, um, I've maintained those relationships that I created in both Cape Town, Cape St. Francis and Durban. And after Durban, my whole intent was to get back on track because the cape town south african part really wasn't part of my five things or five places that i wanted to go to and i had done by then a good part of africa but there was more to see in africa certainly so from durban I hitchhiked uh, up back up to Johannesburg and there were so few roads then it wasn't like you could just look at a map and go to any little town you wanted. There was the Great North Road. It was one dirt track that really went from Nairobi to Cape Town and then it went back up through the Rhodesias and the road split there at Kosti, I think is the name of the town and it went off into the belgian congo so i had come down from nairobi on the east side of the continent of africa done south africa and on my way back i wanted to go up on the west side of africa because there's different topography different tribes different animals different everything so uh i hitchhiked back up to johannesburg which that was no big treat and then from johannesburg Uh, up the rest of south africa then i crossed into southern rhodesia went to broken hill and all these towns and countries names have changed once they got their independence uh they've all changed now and i don't know the names of the towns Mm -hmm. the new names some of them but i so um, i got on the border of so i went through south rhodesia north rhodesia And then the border of Rhodesia, where the road splits and goes off to the right to Nairobi, the one I came down on, or to the left, it went to Jaditville into the Belgian Congo. Now keep in mind, all the time that I was in Africa was the beginning of the end of the uh, European colonies of Africa. So when I first got there, England colonized Kenya and South Africa and the Rhodesias and the larger part of Africa. Belgians had the Belgian Congo. Germans had the Tanganyika. And so those were all foreign government controlled colonies. But when I <clears throat> first got in Nairobi and, uh, from, from India and Mombasa, that's when the Mau Mau uprising took place in Kenya, and the Kukiyu tribe were fighting for independence from Britain. And so Britain brought in troops. They all fought it for a while, but the, the Africans were killing the farmers. They could go out in the ranches and the farms of Kenya Highlands where they grew coffee and other products and hired a lot of Africans, but they killed the farmers because they weren't protected and they just would come in a farmhouse at night with pangas and uh, cut off their head and their arms and legs and murder the kids and their wife and so then the british troops came in and it became a war of attrition between the kukiu tribe and the english forces and so that started to spread so when i was first there with the mau maus uh, i didn't have a problem and there again i I think I described, but I need to do that in greater detail, I think, that because the way I looked, whether they were British, German, or Belgian, or French colonists, they all dressed and looked pretty much the same. There was a traditional look that the politicians or the military people had, and it was all white, it was hot, obviously, so you had white shorts, white stockings up to your knees, a white buck shoes, a, a kind of a military short sleeve white shirt, whether you're military or diplomatic, that was kind of similar. Um, and so that was a white man to the blacks. They had that specific uniform. Now, admittedly, on the farms they didn't wear that, but they were used to seeing, and that's who their targets were: were the British, or the Belgian, or the French. Uh, politicians and the mayors and the government people that ran all these um, cities and countries and then they took certain blacks that they would take to their home country England or France gave them an education and then they would come back and be a railroad uh, engineer or some higher-up status that they had learned in a school come back to their home country. And so those blacks were uh, were targeted as well because they were seemingly helping <clears throat> the white dictatorship of the country, whatever it was. So I was in torn raggedy shorts and I had these tire shoes were the same shoes that they wore made out of old tires. And so when they would see me and because I was dark skinned, to some degree, not white, white, but not black either. But I got you know in the sun all that time. I had a funny hat on, not like they wore. I had no white clothes on uh, and I had these shoes and they clapped, not like we do with two open hands. One was open and the other is doubled up as a fist. And they clapped like this and they get a little rhythm to it. And they would see me in a black group or where I'm by myself standing out on a road or wherever I might be in a little village and they would look at me and then they'd get this clappy routine little rhythm going and then they would look at their shoes and my shoes and point at them and they'd go clap again like that's okay like a sign of approval approval thing they appreciated that I was in clothes like they were so they they in their mind, it appeared to me that they thought I was more one of them than I was one of the white guys, sure. that I was somewhere in the middle, but I didn't seem to be a threat. Yep. And so they didn't uh, ever really bother me. I was bothered more in cities by white kids in Johannesburg and some of the English-speaking colonies where there'd be a, a like in New York, a Uh, you know, a a little group of bad guys that would hassle me because I I had a beard and they didn't have beards in those days and had these, what they perceived as funny clothes and a rucksack and an American flag on And they didn't know American flag from anything else, I don't think. So they would hassle me. And I got in a couple of fights just because of who I was. Mm -hmm. But I never got in a fight with a black guy. Mm -hmm. So it was just strange the way it was. So anyway, from Johannesburg up through the Rhodesias into Jadotville, when I got to Jadotville, and this is why I need to give you that preamble, the Belgians were revolting as the Mau Mau's were in Kenya. And the different tribes, it was more tribal, but all the tribes were against the white guys, but the tribes were still against each other too. Mm. So I got there and Lumumba was a black, Uh, tribal leader and he became the first prime minister of the Belgian Congo the black Belgian Congo so they were fighting for their independence and you might remember maybe you're not old enough but in Life magazine uh, the Belgian paratroopers were flown to the Belgian Congo because they were murdering the farmers the white uh, Belgian farmers and and they murdered a bunch of white uh, Catholic nuns and uh, now the, the, the churches would set up to try and convert the black people uh, to. They'd set up schools and churches and try and form their religion, Catholic or Protestant, whatever it might be, in their particular country that, that those governments had controlled. And so there was a religious thing going on too. So a bunch of French nuns or Belgian nuns were murdered by a certain tribe and I forget which tribe and Lumumba was in Joddutville when I was on a truck, a cotton truck, got into town, and I went to the hotel because there was rioting going on. And a little hotel probably had 20 rooms in it, but there was some Belgians there, and they had commandeered buses. And where the blacks were t- taking these school buses, driving up and down the street, throwing Molotov cocktails at the hotels and the other uh, Belgian establishments, trying to get them on fire. And Lumumba came in a Oldsmobile convertible in a suit and tie with a leopard skin over the suit. So on the top of his head was a leopard's head and the skin was draped over his suit. And he was giving a speech, and I went with some Belgian. The hotel was a second-story building, which was like a big building in the middle of the jungle in those days. We went up on the roof, and he was giving a speech, and he had a bottle of Gilby's Gin, a quart bottle in his left hand, and was, you know, moving his right hand around and giving this wild speech. And they later uh, murdered him. I didn't see the actual murder, but they murdered him in that car later that day and i was on the roof and that the belgian paratroopers then were brought into town and tried to simmer it down and i have pictures of them throwing molotov cocktails and trying to get we were under the tables in the hotel as they were throwing uh, molotov cocktails to and all the buildings were wood Uh, to catch them on fire so i was in the middle of this rioting in different countries different levels different cities it was different levels than it was out in the country so you'd you know there'd be rioting in one town and i'd get a ride to another town and it would be more peaceful so you just didn't know
0: you um seem to have a good understanding of the political conflicts that were happening, how did you know
1: when you were on the ground? Were you reading newspapers? To no, there were out? no newspapers and all the only information you got was people that picked you up because they were usually Belgians or people of that country, not always. So trucks that I got a lot of rides in were and there would be again where a black guy had maybe gone to school, maybe not in England, but he'd gone to some little school, missionary school, and learned to drive a truck, and and he had a higher social status than the than the regular African that was just living off his wits and the food in the in the jungle. And he would have enough English <clears throat> to be able to communicate a little to bit. You. And so several times I would be on the road. And you didn't stick your thumb out. You're just standing there. I mean, they would stop when anybody was there. And the truck driver would stop, and he would have maybe two or three blacks in the seat, on the front seat, in the cab. And then on top of cotton or whatever it was they were carrying, papayas and fruit that they were taking to market, there would be maybe 10 Africans up on top of the, 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 the stuff they were carrying. And... Usually um, the black driver would get out and he would kick the guys in the cab out and literally kick them and beat on them and uh, not beat them up, but just hit them a couple of times and make them get out. And he would invite me to come in the cab of the truck. And I wouldn't always do it. And so a lot of times i say, no, no, no. You know, they were here first. You know, our sense of right and wrong and equal uh, ways we, you know, we're just more uh, organized in a line. When a line forms, you go to the back of the line. You don't try and cut in the front of the line. Those are just things that we've learned in our culture. You know that as a kid. So... I would say, no, I'm the last one on the truck. I'll get up on top. Well, I have pictures of me up on the truck, uh, top of a truck, a cotton truck, holding a chicken uh, with a bunch of other Africans with that hat on, mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't get in the cab. Sometimes the driver would insist. He'd beat the guy and say, no, 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 you got to come in the cab. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't want to cause a scene. So I'd get in the cab. So there was a social structure among the tribal blacks as much as there was between the blacks and the whites. Mm -hmm. But as far as knowing what was going on, you know, there's no radios, there is no newspapers. And when you're out there getting a ride, I mean, I'm waiting. I waited uh, 14 days, I think was the longest. I waited for a car to come by. That's insane. You know, not just sitting there and you don't wait on the road you might be in a little hut it's gonna rain uh, you get out of the rain and you can hear a car coming an half an hour before it gets there the monkeys start chirping and the parrots or birds are flying around and you can casually walk out in the road and the cars are going so slow then yeah. you know they're gonna stop so it wasn't like you're standing in the road with your thumb out and you were carrying your American Express cashier's checks these ent- this entire time I had uh, in 10 and 20 dollar uh, denominations Amazing. and I would cash ten dollars at a time so i never had more than 10 local currencies in my pocket so i didn't ever so when i pulled out my pocket you know i had a couple of shillings or francs or whatever it was i didn't have much money and i didn't want them to think i had much obviously and so when i'd cross into another country usually at the borders you could sell your South African rands to the Rhodesian guys, and they don't give you a good rate, but I didn't have a use for them once I left the country. So, you know, I'd sell money all the way along and convert it into the next country's money. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay, so that. You were headed towards Rome, right? Well, I wanted to go into the Belgian Congo because I wanted to see the pygmies, and pygmies were only in the Congo. Denser jungle. In Kenya and Tanzania and the Rhodesias, it's more uh serengeti plains like so great grassy plains like the midwest of our country where you see pictures you don't so many anymore it's all corn and stuff but yeah. where it would just be grass and occasional acacia trees mm-hmm. but in the belgian congo it's tarzan deep dark jungle Trees that are 100 feet tall, you can't see the sky, it's so dense, and that's where vines are hanging down and there's a lot of underneath growth and that's where the gorillas are. Different animal habitat in different countries because of the climate, the elevation, and so forth. So the Aturi forest, um, or the Aturi mountains are the big high mountains more or less on the border of the belgian congo and uganda and that's where the gorillas are and that's where the pygmies lived and i you know i wanted to see cultures i wanted to see tribal differences i'd seen watusis and Kukius and zulus and they all have their own customs their own dress their own attitudes their own weapons and you can tell by looking at them different tribes of Kind of spears they're carrying, or whatever it is. The Maasai were the greatest tribe of the ones that I admired the most. And to become uh, a a tribal a Maasai warrior, or uh, they call him uh, Moran, a Maasai Moran. You have to kill a lion with your broadsword and your spear and um and you maasai all have scars where they've killed a lion and the lion has clawed them and bit them and um and then they circumcise the guys this is how tough they are they when the kid reaches puberty more or less they'll and they don't have years they don't say they're five or six years old they have age groups And so let's say one to five, you're a certain thing. And then you're from five to eight, you're something else. And you grow up in these age groups. And so when you become, when you reach puberty, more or less, they take the boys and they'll sit them in a cold river where it kind of paralyzes you to some degree. And they circumcise you with a sharp rock uh and you know if you cry you're not being a, a real messiah and so and they even circumcise well they say circumcise but they circumcise the women as well and their clitoris they take out their feeling so the the whole procedure and thought is because they're warring all the time and you're stealing women from other tribes and if your woman, gets stolen by another tribe you don't want them to have any sexual feelings so they have this whole system and culture that they go through to protect their women and their men and to see if they're warriors and as they grow older and get to 20 or 25 in that age group is where they can become a Moran which is the fiercest warrior and Jamal can yet yeah, I'm bouncing around a little bit but When I was in Kenya, Jamal Kenyatta was the chief of the Kukiyu tribe, which is the biggest tribe in Kenya. And they were fighting the Maasai, which is the smallest tribe, but they're fiercer. They're better trained, they're just meaner. And they don't look like regular blacks. They're taller, they don't have the broad nose and the bigger lips. They're more Arabic looking, they're black, but they have a whole different facial features to them and jammu kenyatta publicly admitted when i was in nairobi that one messiah warrior was equal to 10 of his fiercest wow and they would go on raiding parties and kill the kukiyos who were fighting the english uh, and the messiah weren't necessarily with the english but they were just, they liked to fight and it was all about gaining their cattle so they'd go and get their cattle and get their women and then they'd become Maasai women and Maasai cattle. So it's all these intertribal wars that were going on while I was there, but I didn't seem to have any big problems with it because I think of the way I looked and the way I acted and the fact that I was by myself mm-hmm. and had these tire sandals in particular, but the other dress that I had. So <clears throat> after Jottetville, I was there four or five days when they're doing this riding. the. Belgian paratroopers came in, that simmered it down. I got a ride to a town called Beni, B-E-N-I. And there's no town, it's a village, but there was a little general store run by a Belgian. And I ended up coming to that little village and uh, when there was a white man obviously I'd go talk to him and he was speaking belgian and french and Flemish, which i couldn't speak either but he knew enough english that we could communicate and it was just a general store you could have some buy some little of uh, you know european food and clothes and they buy yardage so the women then would take the yardage and do capes and like a you with it that kind of thing and so i talked to him and All of a sudden, the car drives up. It was a, I say, a car. It was a four-wheel drive um, English, uh, what was it called? Um, Anyway, it was like a jeep, and it had a white hunter driving, and a white guy in the back. And they came in the store, and the black, uh, the the driver and the white guy were speaking English. So I started talking to them. And I said, gee, are you from America? Because he had an American accent. And he said, yeah. I said, where are you from? He said, well, you wouldn't know. It's a little town between Los Angeles and San Diego. And I said, well, I'm from a little town between Los Angeles and San Diego. What town is it? He said, Laguna Beach. And I couldn't believe it. Here I'm in the jungle of the Belgian Congo. And I said, well, I've lived there all my life. I'm born there. What's your name? And he said, Mr. Smith. And I said, you don't own that big house by Emerald Bay, stick it on the point. He said, yeah, that's my house. And we always called that the haunted house because they didn't live there all the time. It was a great big house hung out over the cliff right by Emerald Bay. And it was all vacant lots around there then. And we used to go around there and, and try and get in because it had uh, some of the, when he'd go away, it put shutters on it. And we always thought it was haunted. And uh, as a kid, I knew exactly his house and I started talking to him. I said, well, my mom's a school teacher. My dad owns the broiler in downtown Laguna. He said, oh yeah, I eat at the broiler every now and then. I know your dad's restaurant. So we had this nice chat and it was later in the evening and they had two rooms upstairs of this uh little general store and so the driver the white hunter guy he was an englishman um and he was had a. they all carry guns because you never know when an elephant's going to go rogue or something so and he had been hired to drive mr smith wherever he wanted to go and see some of black africa and he happened to be at benny the same time i was so i'm talking to him they rent the room and go up and i'm sleeping uh on my with my blanket out on a wooden sidewalk in front the front door of this store had a little overhang because it rained a lot there was in the dense jungle so i just curled up there and i thought guy tomorrow morning when they get up their car was parked right there you know i'll get a ride with him into Kampala or or uganda wherever they were going because they were heading in my direction so in the morning i'm up and i'm sitting there in the cover and it was kind of sprinkling not raining too hard and they came down and they didn't come out in front they went to the car started i heard it start drove around and they're in you know low gear going real slow it's all muddy and dirt and and they're coming around and i'm standing under this kind of roof and the the road was right in front and the driver is at the wheel and the guy the mr smith is in the back seat And the driver looked at me, saw me, and I waved. And thinking with all my experience, they're going to stop and and let me in. And the driver stopped and rolled down the window, and I stuck my head in. And Mr. Smith in the back tapped him on the shoulder and said, go on, don't stop. Mm. I couldn't believe it. Here's a guy from my hometown I had spoken to. Even though I looked raggedy, he knew who I was. It wasn't like I was some... Uh, unexplained hippie out in the middle of the jungle that he didn't know. He knew my dad to some degree, knew my dad's restaurant and they drove away, I couldn't believe it. I'd been picked up by every black guy in the continent, and here's a guy from my hometown, wouldn't give me a ride. I picked up a rock and threw it at the back of the car, hit the window, didn't go through because it was shatter poof glass, broke the window and it had spiderweb glass yeah. all over it, and they drove away, and I thought, that son of a bitch, I wow. couldn't believe it. And I was just so frustrated. So anyway, I went in the store and talked to the Belgian guy. And I said, I want to go up the Aturi Forest and see the pygmies. And he said, well, there's another Belgian friend of mine that will be here any minute. He goes up there once a week. And this is the day he goes up there and he speaks pygmy. He'll take you up there. But he said, you want to take something with me? And they had in the store bubble gum. So I bought a bunch of bubble gum. And I don't know if you ever chew... When we were kids, we always had Fleurs double bubble, and it's wrapped up in paper, and you unwrap it, and then there's a little funny paper, a little... Comic. Co- comic thing on it, and you unwrap that, and it's a hard, round kind of piece of gum, and you have to break it down before you can blow bubbles with it. So I knew what it was, and I started chewing on it, and this guy, the Belgian, comes along, picks me up. I ride with him only about maybe... Forty-five minutes till we going up in the mountains, and then it was along the road we started seeing pygmies. And I got out a couple times, and he took the driver, the Belgian guy, took pictures of me with two or three pygmies. And you know I'm five ten or so, and they come just to my chest. And I'm there with three pygmy girls with my arms around them, and the top of their head is right about here. They're like four feet tall. Yeah. And so we went on up to the, their village and the Belgian could speak some English, and he said, we got out and walking around, there's just little leafy huts, and these trees are huge, and there's vines, and guys are swinging around in the vines, and all the girls are there, uh, women, uh, and I noticed that their breasts, their boobs were all flat, and they took bark from those big trees and pound it into like tapa cloth So it was kind of like a cloth. And their custom, again, their culture was so different. And they would take this cloth around the top of their breast tight, and then they would keep pulling it down, not on a daily basis, but gradually pull it down. And they thought a sign of beauty was having their boobs real flat And the longer and the flatter they were, the prettier they thought that was. And this Belgian explained this to me. And there's two or three, you know, 17, 18-year-old girls with little firm boobs sticking straight out. And I'm thinking, those are looking really good. Why would they want to change them? But that's what they did. And I have pictures of a bunch of girls lined up there with boobs that are down to their waist, where they're just real thin, they've taken all the muscle tissue, broken that down, and their boobs are just flapping down like razor straps. And then here's a couple of little young gals that haven't started that process yet, And they got firm, little pointy boobs looking great. So I'm passing out bubble gum and I'm blowing bubbles by then trying to get them. And they didn't understand it at all. They put the whole thing in their mouth, the paper and the funnies, Um, the whole nine yards. And pretty soon they're playing with it and they got gum all stretched over their face. But, you know, you got to get it soft and pliable before you can blow bubbles. I'm blowing great big bubbles and they'd pop and everything. And they would clap and laugh and have a great time. But these cute little girls... I thought, God, they're really cute. I don't know if they belong to anybody or not. So I was, in hustling him in a kind of a comic way, and a little guy, little pygmy guy, and a funny little beard. Their beards were real scraggly; it wasn't a complete beard like we tend to get. And he has a bow and arrow. It's like maybe eighteen inches long, the bow, and but they're, you know, these guys could shoot. And he prodded me with the bow and arrow and I didn't I'm laughing all the time because it wasn't like I was really hustling her but she was the cuter one so she was the one I wanted to talk to more and so I thought well I bet I don't know if it's a husband boyfriend what it is and the Belgian comes up to me he says, leave him alone let me show you what great shots they are with the bow and arrow he got up there and he's got his white shorts on and white shirt on he lights a cigarette and then puts it in his mouth and he's like from here to my computer away, and he lined up, and he's talking to the pygmies, got them all lined up, and there's about 10 of the little men, all with bows and arrows, and they're all lined up there, and he stands there with a cigarette sticking out of his mouth, and he's talking to them, and I stood behind him, and they shot that cigarette out of his mouth when he was there smoking (laughs)
0: it. So to give listeners reference, for your computer's 30 feet away?
1: Yeah, about 30 feet away. And he shot it right
0: out That's of my I don't insane. know how many there's
1: a bunch of arrows went by there. I couldn't tell if they all would have hit it or not. But
0: ten guys
1: took a shot at yeah. once. That's insane. <laughs> and he stood there, I couldn't believe he would stand there. And it was a king size cigarette, you know, it was sticking out there maybe three inches, four inches. I don't know. I don't Whoa. smoke. But I have a picture of the whole thing. Wild. <laughs> so it was a crazy day I spent with the Pygmies in the Aturi Forest. I mean, that's worth all of the effort it was to get out To there. get there. Yeah, yeah it just made my day because it just was one more time where I, you witnessed how this continent is so big and so varied and different politics and different attitudes and different lifestyles and different clothes the pygmies just had leaves around them they were pretty naked except for uh just a little string of of leaves around their waist i mean the guys and the girls you could they were really naked as far as when they're walking around and it was just a great experience but it just showed me how varied the whole world is and how different it is and how completely different it was from the way i grew up in laguna beach oh my
0: gosh yeah
1: so he took me back to benny and i hitchhiked i got a ride i think another cotton truck uh, to Uganda and uh, Entebbe the capital of Uganda and I always would go to where white people were to sometimes Well, not in Uganda, but I would go to a bank or try and hotel and find out what was going on in the world. And in some of the bigger cities, there'd be an American Express, and I would get mail there uh, because that's where my mom and some friends would write me to American Express. And I would always tell them, okay, I'm leaving Cape Town. The next American Express is in Johannesburg. Then from then on, I'm not sure, but I know there's one in Nairobi and there's one in Cairo. And, you know, so I would, get mail and then i would mail stuff there as well and i would send the film back to my mom so she i didn't want to carry this film it was a load anyway and i was afraid it would be hot and get uh you know get rotten film or something in the heat and the the humidity so i'd mail that home from stuff so anyway i, would, I always go to those kind of places so in entebbe in there is a hotel and I see this truck or jeep type vehicle with a broken back window that I threw the rock at and I couldn't wait to go in there and and approach Mr. Smith and so I went through into the bar and the lobby of the hotel I didn't see him there I went in the bar and the white hunter was having a beer at the bar and Mr. Smith wasn't there and he said I went right to him and he said i just put mr smith on a plane there was an airport in Tebby and he flew out of here a couple of hours ago and i'm through with him and i said he told me he said i couldn't believe that he wouldn't pick you up and i was thunderstruck when he asked me to drive on and uh but i spotted the car anyway and so uh, that's funny <clears throat> then i wrote a letter well all along i'd written letters uh, the Huntington Beach because I'd had the liquor store in Huntington Beach and knew I was going and Laguna Beach knew I was going so I would occasionally write letters to the newspapers so I wrote the Laguna Beach newspaper where I had delivered papers the South Coast News and uh, told them about Mr. Smith in hopes that they would write an article about it and when I got home because <clears throat> of course another year later <clears throat> excuse me I went to the newspaper i said did you ever write an article he said oh god he's so powerful and he's so wealthy that we couldn't write an article and use his name uh because he would have come down oh, so yeah. hard on us and they wouldn't write the letter and it really bummed me out i That's couldn't funny. believe it so <clears throat> from uh, entebbe then the lake Victoria is in the middle of uganda which is the headwaters of the nile river and there's a the actual headwaters is a little falls there and the whole Nile starts coming out of Victoria I was there on a little bridge where the whole river starts the headwaters coming out and I followed that down and so I was heading now to Cairo uh, and I didn't know how I was going to get there but I knew the Nile went there and so I went down the farther from where the falls were and there were guys in boats. And I said, I want to go to uh, Juba was the name of the town in, uh, in uh, uh, yeah, it's the Sudan. So Juba is on the border of Uganda and uh, the Sudan. And I knew that that's where the river went through and that's where I needed to go. So I rode in about a 16, 18 foot dory. And the guy was rowing, and we're out in the middle of the Nile, which was not very big there. It's not a big wide river; it's just draining out of Victoria Lake Victoria. And I went for about, I don't know, maybe ten miles down the river, and this guy on the boat, and the crocodiles along the edge of the river and sand. And I got a bunch of pictures of those as we came down in the boat. We we're out in the middle of the river, and they were all sunning in the sand, and they just attacked out in the river and they came right beside the boat, and their tails would hit the side of of the, it's a dory, it's, you know, as big as this, a little bigger than this table, and I'm holding on the gunnels, and keeping up, I mean, when their tail would hit the boat, it's really rocking, they're causing waves in there, and both the guy wrong, we're holding on to the gunnels, trying to keep it balanced, so it wouldn't go up uh, go were the, over were they trying to knock well the boat i don't over? know i don't know what they but they were like uh, i wonder if they've done it before well i didn't know but I, we, he said grab onto the gunnels and he didn't say that but he did it and i knew what he yeah. was doing yeah, yeah. because i scared the hell out of me oh, yeah. and i could see the ale- crocodiles were longer than the boat was i mean wow they, i don't know how big the boat was but it, it was 14 15 16 feet and these the tail was one and the head was at the other end wow and i mean they are huge and hitting that boat uh rocking it God, it scared me and that That's was horrifying. A, that was the scariest of any of my animal encounters i was chased by buffalo i don't know if i told you that story um, i had lions uh, around me and stuff but the
0: chased by the rhino was the story the rhino the that
1: told yeah. that story so it was a scary time but that was the scariest in the water in a boat yeah thinking you're gonna get tipped over Insane. and there was like two or three of them in the water terrible yeah so i got to juba and there was just nothing there a little tiny village a general store and across the street was a mission And an English missionary, I went over and talked to him and I said, I want to go to Cairo. How can I get there? Down the river? He said, there's no boats going down from here because the river turns into a big papyrus kind of a a lake and a, a flat. And he said it's hard to find your way through that, and it doesn't hardly move. Uh, and he said so. There's, but he said the only thing that goes there, they take the Sudan government takes Sudanese government trucks. They come to Juba once a year in the cool time of the year, and bring supplies twice a year because of the rainy seasons. They usually come twice a year, I think he said. And so he said they were here about a month ago and have gone back, and there won't be any for another three or four months. But he said one truck had broken down, and they're working on repairing it. He might be able to get a ride, if they ever get it fixed, to go across the Sahara and the Nubian Desert. The next city in Sudan was Khartoum. And Omdurman, I don't know if you're familiar with all the old movies I used to see, but the Blue Nile and the White Nile, the White Nile drains Lake Victoria, the Blue Nile drains Ethiopia. And they come together at the capital of Sudan as Khartoum. And Omdurman was the native village where, they, on the other side of the river where the British fought the uh, uh, Sudanese tribes to control the Sudan. And General Kitchener, it was made into a movie, and it was a great historical thing. He came to rescue the white people that were in Khartoum, and it was a siege and, you know, a great war story. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's where all that took place. I wanted to go to Khartoum, and the river went right through there, and I went from Khartoum on to uh, eventually to Cairo. So, I waited about a week or 10 days and stayed with this missionary. He said I've been here 27 years and as far as I know, no white man has crossed the Nubian or the Sahara Desert in this part of Africa. And I did get a ride on that truck and we uh, took, I think it was 9 days to the next town of Kosti. Wow. And um uh, I rode with uh I think it was there was 12 Arabs on it and a guy that drove it. And it was so hot in the middle of the day, it was 130 in the middle of the day, and we couldn't di- drive the truck. We'd all get under the truck, and lay under the truck. And I don't know if you ever laid under a truck and looked at the differential for eight hours. No, see not if, for eight hours. <laughs> see if any oil is dripping out of the, the transmission the differential. And we're just all 12 or 14 of us were laying in the sand under there, 130. And then the unbelievable part of it—it it froze at night. The temperature dropped a hundred degrees. It went to 30 degrees at night, and it was so it changed so fast that my skin on my cheeks would split. You know, like you get yeah. a canker sore on your lips. Well, that's how my cheeks were. They didn't bleed. They just kind of oozed, and so all your visible skin would just tighten up and split and dry. It was unbelievable. Did you
0: have yeah. enough water? I mean, well, how did you ration that stuff?
1: Well, before we left, the truck driver talked to the missionary and I had to get a 5 gallons uh, and so they uh, took me down to a little another place and they bought lard in 5 gallon square. I don't know, but I used to see this in my dad's restaurant. The way you'd buy lard was in a 5 gallon square. Can that they'd open the top and you'd use, you know it'd be in a restaurant you'd use lard to cook with and uh, bake and stuff and so they had these same cans and they had take ripped the top off so there was no cap on it so I had a five gallon can filled with water and then I had to make a top out of leaves and kind of just plug that hole it was about two inches across. And they had a rack, so everybody on that truck had a five gallon can of water. Unfortunately, it was a rack built right by the gas tank where the gas tank is under the bed of these are bedford trucks they were made for the desert there was no speedometer dashboard there was a compass and all he would go by a compass and the stars it would be like on a ship in the ocean because you're out in the desert the desert changing all the time every time it blows there's a new little dune that appears so each trip it's different and the sudanese government they're going to have pictures built a three-walled brick structure to protect Uh, camels, trucks, whatever, going across the desert when it's really a storm. And you could kind of hide behind these things because it seemed like the wind came from three directions. One side was always open where you could kind of huddle in there. We didn't have that kind of wind, but it was windy enough. And the weather was incredible. I started out in my shorts and a t-shirt thinking, you know, it's going to be hot. And all of them are dressed in Arab garb and completely covered. I have a picture of me in that truck, and I put on my Levi's. I had one pair of Levi's, a sweatshirt. I put on, I had a, 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 I stole a towel from the YMCA in Nairobi, and I made a turban out of that instead of this hat. And I just put on as much clothes as you could because that protected you from the heat. Mm-hmm. And so it was an incredible trip across there to Costi. And once we got to Costi, then I could get on a barge that was going down the Nile River. And uh, it was kind of a cakewalk then sitting on the barge. (laughs) Everything feels like a cakewalk (laughs) at that point. (laughs) And uh, we went uh, down the river. I can't remember how many days, but they were building the Aswan Dam. And it was on... on the border of, of uh, the Sudan and, and Egypt. And that dam is what buried the great artifacts of Egypt. So they were building that, and we got to the base of the dam that they were building. They had a tributary that came around. You couldn't go in a boat. And we had to walk all this, I don't know how many miles it was, up to the other side where they had built a temporary dam to change the course of the river. And then I got on another barge that was pulled by a little uh, powerboat, uh, and then I went to uh, down the Nile River, going toward Egypt. But we stopped at the Valley of the Kings and saw Thebes, and I went to all the great uh, that were still uh, above water. But uh, King Tut's tomb, I was in that, and all the great. Uh, Colossus that they built along the, so all along the Nile it was really fertile because they had the water, and then about you know a half a mile inland it was fertile, and then from then on it was desert. Mm-hmm. So you had this water stretch, and the river's pretty wide there, and then a green stretch on both sides, and then sand stretch as far as you can see from that. Right. So from there I got to Egypt eventually, uh, spent a few days there I didn't you know the cities didn't appeal to me but I always wanted to see the pyramids of course and the Sphinx and all the historic stuff and I'd go to the museums <clears throat> the art galleries then I hitchhiked to Alexandria which is on the coast of Mediterranean and a seaport and with my letters I got
0: on a... can't get a word in edgewise but I'm gonna push pause interrupt Dick for just a minute uh, before he heads out of Africa and into Europe, where he will tell us about running with the bulls in Pamplona, going to the Olympics, all that great stuff. So we'll be back in just a minute. Thanks. We're introducing a brand new sponsor this month with the holidays in mind, posterburner.com surf. Poster Burner makes the process of printing photos easy and inexpensive, and I'm sure that you've had images that you've been intending to print for a long time, but just never got around to figuring out the best way to do it. Poster Burner allows you to upload your images and then turn them into anything from posters to canvases, Christmas ornaments, phone cases, puzzles, water bottles, coffee mugs, pillowcases, license plates, shirts, dog tags, all sorts of stuff that's great for gifting. The printing is high quality. They have old-fashioned, conversational customer service. They print fast. They ship fast, and they offer a money-back guarantee if you're not happy with your product. So, posterburner.com/surf gives you 10% off your entire order, and it supports this show. Posterburner.com/surf. Thanks.
1: And I hitchhike to Alexandria, which is on the coast of Mediterranean and a seaport and with my letters I got on a Greek ship it wasn't a Norwegian ship but the Greek captain saw my letters and got me on the Greek ship and we went across the Mediterranean to Piraeus which is the seaport of Athens and it was a you know a three or four day trip it wasn't a big deal and then I uh, went <clears throat> and my mom as I said was a teacher and she had gotten her masters and phd at Pomona College And uh, one of the professors she got to know, and he became the, um, well, he worked in the American embassy at Athens as a cultural attache. So he was from Pomona College, where my mom had gone to school, Claremont Graduate School. And he was working there for a, a year as a cultural attaché. And I had met him, uh, and my mom had written him letters that I might be showing up. And so he, of course, took me in, into his home with his wife, and I stayed with them for about a week. And then I got a job and I'm going all around Athens the Parthenon and seeing all the stuff. And they were really helpful in showing me the stuff. And then I got a job tending bar at a bar and all these major cities, especially in Europe, have a big open square and all the main stores and hotels are around that square. And in that square was the Las Vegas club. And uh, I went in there for a beer and they were, <clears throat> one of them spoke English, and I told him I was a bartender. Oh, we'd love to have you ten bar here because show us how to make American drinks. <clears throat> so... For every afternoon i'd tend bar for like a couple three hours but they let me stay upstairs which was the hooker house so in the third story they had all these hookers up there and uh, then they had extra rooms they were renting to the guys that would get the girls so they gave me a room and i tended bar to las vegas club for about a week but not all not all day long just for several hours and showed them how to make drinks and then my mom's friend because he was in the american embassy could get me tickets to the olympic games in rome so he got me a whole bunch of tickets through the american embassy and so when i left athens i hitchhiked all across greece i wanted to go to turkey and istanbul and that's a fabulous city of all the cities you know you can go to london and paris and Munich and Frankfurt and all of them are they all have unique things about them but Turkey and Istanbul in my mind was the my most favorite city Mm. I mean it was so unique I mean it's you know they it's right on between Asia and Europe. So it has the Asian culture. It's on the Bosphorus from the Black Sea coming into the Mediterranean. They control that waterway, the Turks do. And so there's Muslim cultures and Catholic and Protestant. And and they've got St. Sophia there, the only mosque in the world that has six minarets. Most of them only have four. So that's a real historic place. So I went, I wanted to really go to Istanbul and I spent two weeks there, and it rained quite a bit, and I'd go to the American library that they have in most of those big cities, and I could read all about the Crusades and the English uh, and the other Europeans coming to fight in Israel and what became the Crusades, all the religious wars, and, and I could walk right outside of the library, and here would be a big fort that was built by the Crusaders on their way to and from and here's you read about it and you walk across the street and here the thing is you know it was really an intense history lesson to read this stuff and then walk and be in the ruins of of all that from a thousand
0: years ago yeah yeah.
1: and it was just amazing so i went to the bosphorus and uh, the blue mosque is another great thing and this is another thing that i learned cultures so i'm staying at the ymca for like two bucks a night and there's all these Muslim kids that are in there, why too, and stay in there. And they have a shower, like we did at Laguna High School. I don't know how it is anymore, but we just used to have a, a room about half as big as this library. You know, about eight foot square with shower heads. And you'd take a shower with all your guys after football practice, and everybody's naked taking a shower. And that's just the way it was. So I wasn't, uh, it, it, it wasn't different for me to go in this shower. And I'm in there with four or five Arab guys and they were all, I was 31 or two at the time and they were more like 18, 19, 20 in that age group. And they all start looking at me and giving me the stink eye and and what I didn't know at the time, I'm circumcised and they weren't mm. and they thought I was Jewish because I had been circumcised and so they all started circling around and saying stuff in other languages I couldn't understand and I'm speaking English and I always tried to keep a big smile on my face so it wasn't threatening and certainly there was five or six of them so I wasn't threatening them and uh, so uh, I I walked out of the shower and dried off, and I went into the other room where there was a guy with towels and, you know, like an office of the YMCA, and he spoke some English. I said, why are these guys all pissed off at me and like they were going to beat me up or something? And he said, well, are you circumcised? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, they think you're Jewish, and they don't know that you're an American, and that doesn't mean anything in America. Mm -hmm. So all these little things were great experiences, Because I was so naive growing up in our lifetime and culture and the way it was in Laguna was so different. Every time you had a different sense and you learned so much just from being there I mean you you can you can read these things in a book but it doesn't sink in like it does when you're standing there in the middle of a shower and you're all wet and there's five (laughs) guys ready to punch you out while you're naked (laughs) so anyway but I love Istanbul, and that's the one city I'd go back to in a minute Mm -hmm. and I've gone back to certainly Paris and London are fun to go back to but but once you've been to all those museums and everything at least for me I'm not a art enthusiast especially you want to see it once and is enough but Istanbul I would walk from the Y and that was another part of the culture so the I'd walk to go to the American Express every day because I was expecting mail and I would mail stuff out of there so my little routine would be to go to the American Express they spoke English what should I see well you want to go to the palace on the box first and you got to do all these things and so I did all those things but, on the way, I noticed there were several hotels that looked like hotels, and so I went in one and it was a lobby, and there was all these girls half naked drinking tea and it was really and but they were all big and fat, and it's so different from and there again, like in the Congo or uh, you know, pygmies or different tribes have all these, what they think is beautiful, what we consider beautiful. So it was really a whorehouse. And they but it wasn't downstairs in the lobby, you go in for tea, uh, and they drink this green tea. And so the guys would come in on their way to work. And so instead of stopping off at, at a McDonald's and getting a a bacon and ham sandwich and a cup of coffee, they'd go into a whorehouse and have tea, and they had called them crumpets, but some kind of pastries, and they'd sit around and talk to all the hookers. They're kind of dressed. They'd have a negligee on, Uh, but they're also, to me, so ugly and homely. (laughs) They're all real fat, but the Turkish guys seem to really like heavy-set, fat women, and because of their background and their whatever, they're real hairy, the women almost have to shave, Mm. you know, and they got hair under their arms and hair on their legs, and and they almost look like a guy. You know, they don't have hair on their boobs or anything, but, but their face, they have little mustaches and stuff, and they don't shave like our women might, and so there again, a whole different process. So I, they they had a big sofa, and these girls would laugh at me because I'd come in and I'd laugh at them. And I'd sit in this sofa surrounded by two or three of these gals that outweighed me by a hundred pounds, yeah. and they were in negligees, and I'd have tea with them, and I'd pat them on the leg, and we'd laugh, and they'd pat me on the back, and mm-hmm. say, "Come on, let's go upstairs." And I'd, oh no, you scare me. <laughs> 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 but it was. Just again the the way life is in so many different countries it's so amazing to oh, me yeah. <clears throat> so after I saw everything in Istanbul, I'd learned that they had just and I'd read about this so long before the war the Orient Express was the most famous train in the world went from London to Istanbul and and it had all kinds of mysteries on it and uh, you know there's been movies made about it and everything so I wanted to ride. the orient express but i they won't stop it went through bulgaria and romania and they were still communist countries and they wouldn't let the train stop uh and i didn't have a visa so i couldn't get out anyway so i had a visa to yugoslavia which was on the other side and i couldn't hitchhike through those countries because they were communist uh, and they weren't letting anybody in and the train american express had told me this is they'd done one coming down from london and this was the first train going from istanbul back to london and i could ride it from istanbul to uh, uh, belgrade yugoslavia through romania and bulgaria and it would be on the first train going the other way so i bought a ticket and it wasn't very much i don't know it was maybe 20 bucks or something to go from Istanbul to Belgrade, and I got off there and then hitchhiked from Yugoslavia into Europe, uh, to you know, to Italy first, Trieste is the border going into Italy, and went to Rome. The Olympics weren't on yet, so I went over to France and Spain and hitchhiked all around Europe. and then a dear friend of mine from laguna dennis jacobson i always called him jake i started kindergarten with and he had stayed in touch well he knew i was going and so he had flown to england to see his relatives Uh, that summer it was in july and um, he wrote me and said i'm in england i could meet you in europe uh, if you want. So I had planned to buy a Volkswagen. I went to Wolfsburg to the factory, the Volkswagen factory. And I bought a brand new Volkswagen for $860 and took it right off the line. And so he flew to uh, Copenhagen. And I drove the Volkswagen to Copenhagen and met him there. And for the next month, he and I just drove all around through Germany and Munich and Sweden and Norway and Denmark and just drove all around Europe seeing the sights with him in the car and then he had to go he was a school teacher in Corona Del Mar so he had to go back to work and I left him at the airport I think in France or Paris or somewhere and then I put the Volkswagen in garage in Spain because I was by myself I was better off hitchhiking Uh. when you're with somebody it's a lot harder to get a ride And so we had the car, and I thought, well, I might as well use it when we're together. Then we could put all our gear in it. We could even sleep in it occasionally if I had to, and we'd stay at youth hostels. So I saw Europe kind of in a way that way, and then as soon as he left, I went back to hitchhiking and living in hostels and camping out and went to the places that I hadn't gone before. So I spent about a year in Europe. I mean, I got to know it pretty well and went all through Austria and skied and, you know, all the resorts there and the great ski towns, you know, uh, Zurich, well, Zurich, I went to uh, Lauterbrunnen and Wengen and, uh, you know, all the great Austrian ski resorts and skied there. And and, uh, I went to the Olympic Games, of course. And (coughs) the Olympics, I think, were later that year and um i the coach uh bud winter was his name bud winter was the san jose track coach and he was the one that gave me a track scholarship so i met him he got me in the village and so i saw a lot of the games from an athlete standpoint being inside the games and then i had a bunch of tickets And one of the tickets i had gotten in athens from my mom's friend, was uh, at a ringside at the uh, light heavyweight boxing championship. And it happened to be Cassius Clay winning the gold medal in Rome. Uh, as he was Cassius Clay, before me became Muhammad Ali, and he won the gold medal and won the light heavyweight division. And I was at ringside, saw that fight. Crazy. And so that was really great. I met uh, the sprinters, and I was a hurdler. And Ehrman Harry from Germany won the high hurdles that year and uh, we had won it every year up through all the Olympics and we didn't win it that year uh, because he was really good and I met him. So I really had a great time at the Olympics more than just being a spectator. I was a spectator at a lot of sports but I was inside the village. They didn't have the security because it was after that that the uh, the the, uh, Jewish team was murdered and in Munich, that was like eight or 12 years later, every four years. So anyway, I saw that. And then my last of my five targets was to go to Pamplona, Spain. Right. And that's always on Bastille Day, which is the 10th or 12th of July. So during all this, I guess it was before I did that, before I picked up Jake. Uh, in Copenhagen with the car so I went there first and that was before the Olympics too I had that little out of sequence there so when I got to Italy and France and I went to uh, Pamplona Spain and ran with the bulls every day the first day I mean everybody stays up all night and drinks and you can buy a glass of wine in any of the bars in Pamplona at that time for about three American cents. Wow. <clears throat> and so for a dollar, you could buy the whole bar around so you could, and there's always a couple of Americans that are showing off and they'd buy the bar around and you'd get it more in a, like a, a shot glass, a mm-hmm. little, it was bigger than a shot glass. It would be like a highball glass with about an inch of wine in it for two or three cents. So everybody stays up all night and drinking red wine and getting pretty drunk. And then they go out in the street and there's a parade and the, the bulls run at seven in the morning. And what happens, the street is packed with everybody. They're all hung over and most of them have little red kerchiefs around their neck and they're gonna use that as a, a, a like a, what do you call it? A, when you're a with cape, a bull, a, like a bull. Yeah. And so the cannon goes off and but they don't let the bulls out the cannon goes off and everybody thinks they let the bulls out so everybody starts running and it's a madhouse they're trying to get out of the way the bulls don't go for another 15 minutes they fire the second cannon and that's when the bull goes and so i was right at the gate where the bulls were because i was cocky and a sprinter and thought i could beat the, the bulls running about a half a mile it seemed to me from the bullpen to the a bull ring and so they've got all the cross streets they've got them fenced off so there's fences at the cross streets and then there's doorways into houses and and buildings along the way but those doors are all locked and guys so when the bulls start running when they let them out You can't, as a human, and it's on cobblestones and it's up a hill, you can't beat the bulls that way. I I tried, and halfway up, I'm out of gas, and I couldn't run any farther. And the bulls are taking near, they're right behind you. It's funny that you thought you could. Uh, Well, I just was, you know, I thought, God, I've run track. I'm a sprinter. I'm faster than most people. They got four legs and a thousand pounds of muscle, (laughs) and they're coming on. And so I just had to jump at one of these cross streets, went over the fence, and they went by. And the whole, I learned that first day, the game is to get in the bull ring, and uh, with the bulls, they keep the door closed, so people are buying tickets to go in the bull ring, but the the doors are closed until the bulls are right there then they open them the bulls go in and so if you're running right beside the bulls and there are not very many people that run with the bulls there's guys in the streets they take off but running right with the bull there's 10 or 8 guys so what i found out is in order to get in the bull ring you have to start halfway up the road so instead of starting where the bulls are let out You start about the midpoint, and then I could beat the bulls for the next, let's say, 300 yards Mm -hmm. and get in the door because just as I'm there, they open the gates, and you run, and the bulls are so focused to get through that door. And they have Mexican guys, Spanish guys, with bamboo, uh, pieces of bamboo to whack the bulls to keep them moving forward. And the kids... They're really university kids. They're fratern- like fraternity kids. They're trying to get one bull separated from the whole herd and get him coming back down the street, so the other bulls go in. Then they have to keep the gate in open longer, and then they'll cape with the one bull with their red kerchief. And supposedly there are bullfighting experts in the streets that are watching. And if a kid has a good moves they'll maybe potentially get to be a matador get to go matador school so the kids are trying to show off and everything and then they'll have a big dog pile of human bodies after the most of the bulls go in to, and if they've separated one bull to keep him from going in, they'll put a big dog pile of kids right at the doorway. The gates are still open, but the bull in is hesitant to go over this human. And every year they drive them over, and that's how everybody gets broken legs and arms. Because the bulls will climb over. Who are the kids that agree kids? to get they're, piled they're, up? The they're, they're dog pile. Crazy. And they, uh, and it's just they a come, show of bravado. Yeah, and, and Yeah, it's a big ego trip for all these kids and and so the next night at the bar, you know, if you got your arm in a sling or you got a bunch of stitches in your face or whatever happened, I got gored in the foot where the bull, I have a picture of that too. I'm in the street with the bull, took a picture of him and then he charged down the street. I went over the fence and this sandal, his horn just came through this and just nicked my foot. It wasn't a big deal, but I did get nicked yeah. just diving over the fence. Wow. So it's a scary time. Oh, my God! And if you do run with the bulls, I can say at first there's this crowd that clears out, and then there are maybe 10 guys that are running. I got a picture of guys, their feet are in the air, and then they run out of gas, and then they'll just hug the wall and pretend like they're not moving. And hopefully the bull's momentum carries them on by you. Right. But sometimes they don't. And that's when I was there an American got gored in the eye and yes. died. And they get gored
0: every year. Well, I mean now with YouTube and all that
1: stuff, you could find videos Fine. of it. I see videos. See it, of it, have you yeah. seen it? Yeah. Well, I've never seen it, but I've been there and seen it, so I know right. what it's like. Right. So after that, you know, I saw Europe a year, skied there, did all that, and Pamplona, I went to the Olympics. And then I took the Volkswagen out of the garage in Spain, drove it up to Bremerhaven and uh, put it on a freighter, shipped it to New York. And then I hitchhiked to Rotterdam, got on a Norwegian freighter for New York and took me five or six days to get to New York, signed off in New York and uh, picked up my Volkswagen and drove from New York back to Laguna. Holy cow. How culture shocking was it to go back to america it was just amazing after you'd seen and done and lived in all these different situations to get back and i you know i wanted a hamburger i wanted a milkshake i just couldn't wait to have some of the things that out there on the sahara you know you're dreaming about looking at that differential i thought god if i could have a chocolate shake right oh god would that be good but, I mean,
0: America must have felt like such a shift into a slower gear. And it, well, and then it and had changed, too.
1: And... In three years, oh. it had changed a lot. And uh, we had television. We had television before I left, but it wasn't really working very good. There were little screens, about eight inches square, like a like computer, mm-hmm. little computer. And it was real staticky and it wasn't very clear. And surfboards, when I left, they're all made out of balsa wood. Now they'd perfected foam. Grubby had that honed in. And the new surfboards weighed, you know, 20 pounds. And they were clean and foam and no pigment on them. And, you know, just a lot of things that I noticed that changed so drastically. And of course, to come back, you know, and here's Hobie and Bruce Brown and all my friends living in Dana Point. And right away, we had to have parties. And I, my mom had had all my pictures developed. And, of course, I hadn't seen them. And so she gave me, for Christmas, I got home right around Christmas. I can't remember if it was before or afterwards. But she bought me a little uh, slide projector. And so I put them in. and then then we had a little box you'd put the slides in Mm -hmm. and put like a carousel a carousel but it was square it wasn't a round one it was a square just a length of one you put about 20 slides in there okay and slide it in the slide projector so right away i took it down my mom lived in Claremont then when she was a teacher then she was a she was a principal of a school Then she'd moved from Laguna she had remarried and uh, my dad had taken off anyway um, so I came back to Laguna and Dana Point and I mean every Saturday night would have a party and uh, different groups of my friends would show up and show them the slides and show where I'd been and where I'd surfed and that's where Bruce you know I showed him a dozen pictures of cape st francis and jay bay and cape town and Komaki and all the places i'd surfed in tahiti and the waves in tahiti and australia said bruce god you gotta go to these other places there's some great surf and i was there long enough that i met a lot of people and i knew them you know, well, I lived with them, Whitmore. And I said, you know, I can uh, f- write these guys and they'll help you. Cause oh, yeah. It's not, you know, I wasn't there three days in a casual meeting and you forget the guy. And so right away, I had promised John and I filled a container, a small container with blanks and resin and fiberglass and had it shipped from Pedro to Cape Town. And then when it got there, I flew back I think it was a year or two years later, six, I got back in 61, I think it was not 63, I forget what months, but I flew back to Cape Town and showed him how to make boards with the, all the material I'd sent. And so then Bruce f- did follow my trip, obviously, but it wasn't until 1964, and he had already made foam boards and you know, we'd surfed and had a good time there. So right. all that had really changed. i rather... Yes, I would
0: If I could I
1: surely would
0: Let's not forget that Dick Metz and I know one another because he co-founded the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center in San Clemente. It is our home studio for Spit. It is a museum, and Dick outlined his desire to preserve and catalog surf history in episode number one of this series. Um, He has a huge collection of surfboards, images, print media. It's a tremendous nonprofit foundation, and if you're interested at all in checking out more of their work, shack.org is their website that's s h a c c it stands for Surfing Heritage and Culture Center shack.org they do great work and they have an insane collection of boards um four of Duke Kahanamoku's boards they've got Joe Quiggs they've got everything from that era all the way up to Slater's world title boards Andy Irons boards Shane Dorian's paddle in guns for Piahi um and then everything in between so crazy collection shack.org I've posted a link to their work on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.org. I've also posted a link to the Hobgood doc that I talked about at the beginning of this episode. That is called And To If By See. And I've also posted a link to my interview with the film's director, Justin Purser, who incidentally grew up in the same neighborhood as the Hobgoods, but then went to work in LA making music videos all the while desiring to eventually make a feature documentary film, and he was watching the Hobgoods' lives and careers unfold. So it was only a natural fit for their paths to realign as CJ and Damien's professional, competitive surf careers began winding down. So that film covers all of that stuff, but really the more compelling stuff is about their personal lives, deep dives into their marriages and fatherhood, stuff that we rarely get a glimpse of in the surf world and kind of a level of raw intimacy that is gold for any documentary filmmaker and it's just simply relatable whether or not you care about surfing so and two, if by sea i've posted a link to it and then of course grab slow tide towels for christmas they are packaged neatly which i always appreciate for gifting Um, slow tide gave me a care package last year with a variety of their products and then i actually purchased additional towels last christmas because i loved them so much and i'm sure that the recipients of those towels probably assumed that i just re-gifted towels that i had gotten for free but i did not i actually purchased them so you should consider the same they have blankets throws yoga towels I just pulled up their website to look at something and to post the link on our website. But their round-shaped towels are super cool, and they're actually on sale right now, 20 bucks off. So if you're quick, you should grab those. And then, of course, you get another 10% off with our promo code podcast on slowtide.co. So enjoy that. Pipe has been on hold for a week. It's been excruciating checking that every morning and then sometimes hourly while they go on hold. But it's supposed to run tomorrow, so fingers crossed for that. Scott Bass hasn't replied to my last two text messages about whether or not we are recording tomorrow, and it's already 5.20 p.m. the night before, so hopefully he will get back to me soon. And then Chaz and I are scheduled for Friday for an episode of The Grit. We'll all be off next week to enjoy Christmas, but I'll be back the following week with part four of Dick Metz. Until then, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you to enjoy pipe have a happy holidays. Hopefully you have some time off to get into the water, share some waves, and shred off.